with reporting from around the world. It's time for Eye on Travel with America's number one frontline travel news journalist, Peter Greenberg. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to another edition of Ion Travel, number one for 2024 on this January weekend. And of course, I hope you had a great New Year's and recovered appropriately. I hope you're still having a great time wherever you happen to be. Let me tell you where we happen to be. We are actually in a complete state this week. We're doing a full tour of Louisiana, New Orleans, Baton Rouge, Shreveport, and many other locations that you'll hear about throughout the show. Of course, you can email me, Peter at Peter Greenberg. Dot com with your name, phone number, question, or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. Uh, of course, we've got to talk about the news this week, and let's talk about that airplane incident, that miraculous airplane incident at Haneda Airport in Tokyo, where the Japan Airlines A350 slammed into a Japan Coast Guard plane uh, that wasn't where it was supposed to be. Uh, five people on the Japan Coast Guard plane uh, did not survive. The pilot miraculously escaped, but the real miracle was the 379 people on board the Airbus 350 that got out before that horrendous fire, and you saw the videos, engulfed the plane. So the question, there are a couple of questions that come out of that. First of all, how did it happen? Why did it happen? And most importantly, what have we learned from this? Well, how did it happen? We have already seen the radio transcripts from the tower to both planes, uh, the Japan Airlines plane was cleared for a long approach into Haneda and confirmed that, that clearance and that approach. The Coast Guard plane was told to taxi short of the runway and to hold. And he didn't hold. He turned onto the runway, and of course that's when the A350 hit him. That's how it happened. We also know why it happened. But now the question is, how did everybody get off that Japan Airlines plane with no fatalities? You saw the pictures. They were horrendous, right? Well, there are a number of things to discuss here. And and please don't get angry when I tell you that Japanese passengers are much better behaved than American passengers. They actually listen to instructions. They, are, they literally listened, and they did exactly as the flight attendants told them to do, which was leave everything on board, get out. Now, of course, they were challenged, as you will be in many ca cases like this, where half the exits were blocked because of the fire. And they still managed to get everybody out. Why? They weren't grabbing their carry-ons and their rollerboards and their shoes and their, their lunch. They just got out. And in an amazingly short amount of time. It was um, a cautionary tale because the real question that has to be asked, and by the way, I'm sorry to say it's a rhetorical one, could that have happened with that amount of, 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 of uh, speed and, and flexibility in this country? I'm sad to say my betting is no, for a lot of reasons. One, we're not well-behaved as passengers. Two, we think we have to leave with our laptop and everything we brought on the plane. And three, guess what? American passengers are fatter. We have an obesity problem. Oh, yeah, there's number four. The number of seats that are now on U.S. airplanes that the FAA has allowed to be on these airplanes, it borders on criminal negligence. You almost need an orthopedic surgeon to get off the plane when there's no, there's no incident, uh, let's go back to 2018. United States Congress mandated, you heard me, mandated the FAA to come up with a new standardization for airplane seats that would be safer, that would have more space, and that would not impede a safe and fast evacuation. And what did the FAA do? 
They not only slow walked it, they ignored it. And then some consumer groups took the FAA to court for not obeying the, uh, the act of Congress. And somehow, and I, I have no idea how this happened, the FAA prevailed in court. They did not have to do it. And they still haven't done it. And they're still adding seats to planes. This is nuts. Do you remember back in September of 2015, British Airways 777 leaving Las Vegas? Ironically, it was the pilot's retirement flight. And as he roared down the runway with a full load of passengers headed for London, the left engine caught fire and the pilot had to make a decision within two seconds because he was approaching V1, which was decision speed, right before you rotate. And he made the decision to abort the takeoff. How that landing gear never collapsed is beyond comprehension, but luckily it didn't. They are able to come to a full stop. Again, half the exits were blocked because the left side of the plane was on fire from that left engine. Guess what? How long did that evacuation take? Eight and a half minutes. People were coming down with their carry-on bags, their lunches, their favorite books. I mean, they were very, very lucky. But again, there's a lesson there that needs to be not just learned, but applied. You know, every year, I've talked about this on the show before, but it bears repeating. Every year, every U.S. airline must comply with a test that shows that they can safely evacuate a fully loaded plane in the dark with half the exits blocked in less than 90 seconds. Surprise, surprise, the airlines pass the test every time. And up until recently, they got to pick who actually did the test. Short of hiring the cast from Cirque du Soleil, I have no idea how they did it, except they picked the people to do it. Was there a real cross-section of disability, age, people just panicked by fear? No. You had airline employees who knew exactly what to do. It was a joke. You want to hear even a better joke, or I should say a worse joke? The airlines are now able to, to, to do that test by computer. The FAA allows them to do it by computer. This is absurd. It needs to be amended. It needs to be fixed because, I'm sorry, folks, I'm not going to try to be an alarmist because we've had a very safe airline and air safety environment over the past 30 years. But if you, if you can pinpoint a problem, you should discuss it and you should fix it. Otherwise, you're being, what, criminally negligent. We're looking at an accident waiting to happen. So you have elected representatives. Let them know that this is not acceptable to you. You want to fly in a safe environment because that safety gets tested if you have to evacuate. And if you can't evacuate, forget the fire. You'll be killed by the toxic smoke. So remember the, the lessons that we just learned from the miracle in Japan that we can't currently duplicate in the airspace in America simply because the FAA has not done its job. The FAA continues to think that the airlines are their clients. They're not. We're their clients. You're their clients. And we need to understand that, and then we need to act on it. As I said at the top of the show, we're in Louisiana, and we're going all over the state. New Orleans, Baton Rouge, Shreveport, and many other locations. And you know what? When we come back uh, in our second hour, remember, it's, it's the weekend of the first weekend in January. I'm going to talk about my New Year's resolutions that I'm hoping that the airlines and hotels will not only make, but keep. Some might surprise you, and some of them you've heard before, but that doesn't mean they don't need to be made and kept. So remember that. And we'll be talking to people like Patrick Smith about his predictions for 2024 travel. 
Of course, he's the founder of AskThePilot.com. And our second hour, Gary Leff will be talking. And, of course, Gary Leff is all about ViewFromTheWing.com. Required reading. If you're not online, you should do it. Some of the most entertaining journalism you'll read about the crazy world, I should say the crazy disruptive world of the airline business. Once again, you can always reach out to me, Peter at PeterGreenberg.com, with your name, phone number, question, or problem. We'll solve it right here on the air. We'll be doing that throughout the show. And in the meantime, when we come back, we'll be, we'll be traveling throughout the state of Louisiana. Back with more of Ion Travel as we come back to the bayou right after this. Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Ion Travel will be right back. Once again, here's Peter Greenberg. Welcome back. Peter Greenberg here as Ion Travel continues on our state tour of Louisiana, starting the first show of the new year of 2024. Of course, you know how to reach me. Just email me, peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air as we do all the time right here on the show. Joining me now, one of our regulars to help help us ring in the new year with his thoughts, predictions, projections, worries, concerns, and hopes. I got that all wrapped up into one. Patrick Smith, of course, the author and founder of Ask the pilot.com pilot mr smith how are you sir i am well happy new year to you peter and to everybody and thanks for having me back you know when we last talked which was only last week talking about wrapping up 2023 we we now get you know we have now have the opportunity to talk about 2024 and you know i I take a look at so many different issues that are going in faa near misses air traffic control fatigue uh, staffing issues um you know airport capacity all the things that were with us in 19, <laughs> 1927 are, are, are ratcheted up now for 2024. Uh, what's your take? First of all, you know, I, I had to laugh a little bit in, in a sort of ironic way that the FAA had to, had to convene a committee to talk about how they can reduce near misses. Um, it doesn't really take a committee to figure that out, does it? Yeah, I mean, this, this is an ongoing problem. Um, and it's something we need to look at going into 2024, um, making predictions for the year ahead. That's a little tricky, but I can tell you what I think the biggest challenge will be in the year ahead. And that is maintaining the same level of, uh, of safety that we've had, uh, all along now. And because, um, and for all the reasons that you just ran through, um, understaffing all the logistical chaos that on, to some degree is, is still with us. And, and I, it's interesting, and this is something I've brought up on the show before. When you go back through the crash archives, the air crash archives, you know, going back through the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, all the way into the 2000s, um, yeah, we would have major disasters involving our biggest legacy carriers uh, year in and year out, sometimes multiple crashes in a year. And starting in, well, just after 2001, we've run off a stretch of 22 straight years without a major legacy airline crash. Um, Absolutely astonishing, Uh, unprecedented, the longest such streak in the history of commercial aviation 
it's hardly mentioned because we've come to take it for granted, but it's, it's just, it's been remarkable. And quantifying, you know, how and, and why this has happened is hard, but an element of luck is certainly part of it. And I don't want to say our luck is going to run out and, and leave it on kind of a such a negative cliffhanger like that. But it's naive to think we're never going to have a serious accident again. Of course, we are at some point. Yeah, and but you I'm know, let me, pre- let me let me just jump in there for a second because I totally agree with you, and it is true. It's a, it's an astonishing, remarkable, uh, impossible to duplicate twenty two years of of, uh, of safety. Um, and so we must celebrate that. We certainly acknowledge it. We can't improve on that, I don't think. And the real challenge, as you said, is how do we maintain it? And it may not be with just air traffic control, and it may not just be with pilot staffing or, or air traffic control staffing. It may also have to do with maintenance. Um, and where airlines decide to send their planes for maintenance, who's supervising the maintenance, where's the, where's the federal oversight, and where are the consequences if it falls apart? And that is something that I've been screaming about for a long period of time. You know, we, we went through the Boeing 737 MAX fiasco in which, you know, Congress finally discovered that, you know, manufacturers were being allowed to certify their own products as safe. Uh, that's no longer the case. Boeing can no longer say, well, we built the plane and we certified it as, as, as safe without somebody else certifying it. Of, of a third-party situation, otherwise known as the FAA. So we're sort of halfway home, but we still haven't addressed maintenance, have we? Uh, no, that that's an issue. Um, everything you just said is 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 uh, a problem and uh, a challenge, and something the FAA needs to deal with. Now, if we do have a serious accident, whether it's in the next twelve months or at some point in the reasonably near future, I mean, it, it may have nothing to do with that. Um, it, we just don't know. Um, and but, but let me again, give you an, let me give you an example, if I can. Under current FAA regulations, if an FAA inspector wants to inspect a maintenance facility outside the United States, and as you and I both know, Patrick, a lot of airlines are sending their, their airplanes outside the U.S. for for routine and heavy maintenance. And by the way, these facilities, I'm sure, do a very good job. That's not the issue. The issue is who's inspecting it. And if an FAA inspector wants to go down and inspect the work, under FAA internal regulations, he has to have a reason to go first. Well, what's the reason to go? Does the health department have to have a reason to go to inspect a restaurant? I don't think so. So let's assume, though, for the sake of this discussion, he actually or she actually finds a reason to go. He still has to ask permission. And here comes the part that nobody can understand. Under FAA regulations, they then have to let that maintenance facility know with a seven-day notice that they're coming. Now, let's go back to the health department. Do you think if the health department gave the restaurant a seven-day notice they're going to check out the kitchen, the kitchen might be spotless when they get there? So, I mean, why why is that allowed to happen? And by the way, I'm not saying these maintenance facilities do a bad job, but look at the way these things are structured the possibility of it and not being able to be discovered seems to be pretty high. Yeah, I don't disagree with you at all. And uh, I also feel like you know more about this than I do, so I'm not sure what exactly I can say. I can all right, just for, just for saying that, that Patrick. Just for saying, new, Peter. <laughs> but uh, just for, have been, <laughs> I was about to ahead. say, just for saying that I know more than you do, you're welcome on the show anytime. <laughs> 
I mean, airlines have been outsourcing maintenance to other countries for a long time. This isn't new. Uh, I don't know if the rules have changed for better or worse um, along along the lines of what you're saying, but you know this this has been something that's been with us for a long time. And airlines are certainly incentivized to make sure these facilities are doing a good job. Uh, their insurance companies, you know, have a lot to say in that. And um, we haven't, uh, knock on wood, had any serious crashes that could be tied to. Um, faulty or negligent maintenance performed outside the country, but that's not to say we shouldn't be on it, as as you're emphasizing. And by the way, speaking of anniversaries and you know long periods of safety, next week marks the 15th anniversary of the miracle on the Hudson. It was January of, of 2009 uh, that Captain Sullenberger made that incredible landing on a cold January day in the Hudson River, and everybody survived. Uh, I mean, just amazing. It's bother, by the way, it makes me feel very old that we're now celebrating the 15th <laughs> anniversary um, since I was there at that moment and, and remember it so clearly. But that also goes to show you, you know, it illustrates how few and far between incidents have been. That was an amazing incident, but it's one that also had a lot to do with luck. If, uh, if that bird strike and the uh, dual engine failure had occurred in a slightly different location or if it had been at night or if the weather hadn't been uh, ideal, uh, we would have had a completely different outcome and no skill on the part of the pilots was going to change that. So luck had a huge role. You know what? That, you're, uh, you're absolutely right. You're, you're absolutely right. In fact, I went back and flew that simulator, uh, which we mirrored the actual flight path of that plane. And Patrick, you're absolutely right. If, if the birds had hit him about a minute earlier in his ascent, he never would have been able to clear the George Washington Bridge. If the right. birds had hit him a minute later, he never would have been able to turn around in time to land on the Hudson. And then on that particular day, if the incident had happened an hour earlier, the visibility on the Hudson was zero, zero. And an hour later, I was there. The river iced up. Uh, and... Uh, Talk, and he put it right in the middle of the river where there were no boats at that particular moment in the middle of the river. All that stuff, all combined, the gods were with everybody that day. Uh, amazing, right? There were a lot of variables in play, and uh, that, that could have been a, we could have had a very different outcome if just one of those things had been different. And uh, you know, to kind of wrap this up in whole, Peter, it, it, it's sounding kind of negative here. Um, you know, I, I don't want this to sound like me or you are, are predicting some terrible no. thing is going to happen in the year ahead. But this is a, a cautionary and a reminder that should something bad happen, uh, hopefully we won't overreact. Because you know, even if there is some kind of disaster in the months ahead, you know, I don't see a big statistical swing coming. I think we still are on the whole, going to be maintaining this incredibly safe run. Patrick. One that will hold, occasionally be marred by an incident. Hold on to that thought for a second. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, more with pilot Patrick Smith, the author and founder of AskThePilot.com. I on Travel continuing from Louisiana right after this. Have a travel question or problem? Just email Peter at Peter at PeterGreenberg.com and we'll solve it on the air.
Need more information on what you've heard? Have a travel question or comment? Just log on to petergreenberg.com. Now, here's Peter. And we're back, Peter Greenberg, here on our state tour of Louisiana, running back and forward around the state, and of course, listening for you. You can always email me, peter at petergreenberg.com, with your name, phone number, question, or problem as we ring in the new year, and hopefully we'll be able to answer it right here on the air. We've been speaking to Patrick Smith, one of our regulars on the show, the founder of askthepilot.com, to take a look forward of what we can expect in the new year. I'm assuming, Patrick, that given the meltdowns of 2022 and some other big glitches in 2023, that the airlines are coming to their senses, at least in what they can control, they can't control the weather, but what they can control in terms of their scheduling, in terms of their backup systems when their mainframe computer somehow falls apart, and also in terms of even gate space. I I noticed at the end of, uh, of last year, which, by the way, was, what, eight days ago, I noticed that American Airlines came up with a very interesting idea. And, you know, it's one of those ideas when you hear about it, you go, why didn't they think of this sooner? And that is, you know, when you go to an airport, the guys who basically control the operations of each airline at the airport, uh, in many cases the airport itself, assigns gates to the planes for departure and arrival. But how many times have you landed? How many times have I landed? When, of course, the gate that we were assigned to wasn't available and hadn't been for quite some time. And all of a sudden, you're sitting out there burning fuel, misconnecting passengers and bags, and there may be seven other gates open. So what American Airlines just said they're going to do is they're not assigning any gates. And that when your plane comes in or the plane that I'm a passenger on comes in, within you know three minutes, the, the ground ops people for American are going to say, all right, Captain Smith, you're going to gate 47. And that's the first time you're going to hear which gate you're going to. And guess what? The gate's available, and in you go. And the people who are waiting to take off on gate 47, we all know that it takes, what, at least 35 to 50 minutes to turn a plane around. They'll just have to make their way over to gate 47. Makes sense, right? Yeah, it sounds like a good idea. It's an interesting idea. I don't know that it's one that can work for every airline at every airport. I think a lot of it is airport-specific just because of all the moving parts that are involved uh, between getting a plane in and getting a plane out. Um, everything from uh, you know, unloading and reloading the galleys to cargo to fuel to passengers. Um, it, it, it's hard to, to shift a lot of that at the last second. And that's one of the reasons why it, we have those gate holdouts, as we call them, um, that sometimes become lengthy. Other factors in there, too, um, you know, flight times are padded by the airlines. A lot of times the flight will arrive early. There's no gate. You're waiting out on the apron, and it feels like you're delayed, but actually you're still on time because you landed early. It's just that the uh, there's still a plane at the gate because that flight, which is also on time, hasn't pushed yet. Um, so there's a, a perception issue in here, too, at times. Although I'll give you another for instance. At almost every major airport that I know of, there are penalty boxes that are not attached to jetways, but that are that are behind other planes or between other planes where a plane can pull in and park safely and get people off. And I've always won- wondered, you know, why wouldn't they do that? Uh, because now you don't have misconnecting bags, you don't have misconnecting passengers, and fuel burn or crews that are timing out because they're waiting too long to get to a gate. That would seem to be another way to go. It would. Again, that is something that's airport-specific, though. Not every airport has that um, real estate that can be used for that purpose. And, um, you know, a lot of this is kind of 
thinking outside the box. It's easy for us to do, Peter, but airlines don't like to think outside boxes. I've noticed. You haven't noticed. (laughs) Um, uh, And I sympathize. I mean, waiting for a gate to open for passengers is one of the most frustrating things. Um, uh, Looking back at last year, I I think one of the successes of the year is we didn't have any of the large-scale airline meltdowns that we've kind of become used to. And looking ahead to 2024, that's a trend that I'd like to see kept intact. And it makes me, I'm somewhat confident that airlines have uh, figured out a way to avoid the worst of those meltdowns like we used to see. I'm hoping that you're right. Um, And, you know, I always say to people, you know, the the original advice has always been what? Go get the earliest flight of the day out. Okay, that stands to reason. It's common sense. But I go one step further. And uh, you know, one of my continuing New Year's resolutions is don't just take the first flight out of the day. Take the first flight out of the day flown by an airline that's not based at your airport because there's a reasonably good chance that the plane that's taking you out came in the night before and that crew is sticking with that flight because they're not based there either. And you have a reasonably good chance, barring any kind of a mechanical, to actually get out of the airport that day. That's true. Just hope that the inbound flight the night before wasn't late and that the crew is required now to have extra regulatory rest, <laughs> which could delay your departure after all. Did you have to say uh, that? Things, Did you have to say that? These things are very that? hard to predict. <laughs> I know. I know. But you know what? I'll roll the dice on that one only because I've seen it work. And, and it really... Yeah. It's not uh, on the whole. It's not bad advice. I think that's a, that, that's that's a reasonable uh, reasonable piece of uh, good advice. And then, of course, the new experiment by United Airlines to try to board from the from the window to the middle to the aisle. <laughs> uh, I you know it sounds great, except they have eight other boarding groups that precede that, and I don't understand how that's ever going to work. If if we actually did a deal where we said we're going to board the plane from the back to the front, no matter where you, no matter what class you're flying. I think that might work. But other than that, the, the jury is out on that one. But most importantly, Patrick, I wish you a very happy New Year. Thanks for joining us for a second week in a row. And fingers crossed that all of your predictions, especially about safety and about uh, lack of incidents, come true. Thanks, Peter. Happy New Year. You got it. When we come back, we're going digging in Louisiana with some surprise discoveries when we return right after this. Please remain seated with your seatbelt fastened. Eye on Travel will be right back. Now, back to Eye on Travel. Peter Greenberg here, back with you as Eye on Travel continues on our journey through the state of Louisiana. If you go about three and a half hours north, of Baton Rouge, you're going to find a place that most people don't even know exists. In fact, it's one of a very few number of UNESCO World Heritage Sites in the United States. In fact, a relatively new one, in fact, and it's called Poverty Point. Now, don't let the name mislead you. It's one of the unbelievable archaeological finds of the 20th and 21st centuries. And joining me now is Diana Greenlee. She's the archaeologist here at Poverty Point. Doctor, I had a chance to walk around with you today. I mean, first of all, you didn't expect, I didn't expect the kind of topography that I saw. I didn't expect the kinds of stories that I saw. And I didn't expect the kind of peace and quiet that I experienced. Explain, if you can, the history of Poverty Point. 
Well, how much time have you got? <laughs> well, we'll start. Go ahead. So Poverty Point is this Native American site. It was it has monumental earthworks. It's really a created landscape. And the first archaeological excavations of a sort were conducted in 1913. And um, archaeologists have been studying it on and off ever since. And it's one of the great remaining mysteries of how they got here, how they built it, what they were used for. We're talking about mounds in different locations. And of course, the name Poverty Point may be a little bit misleading because Poverty Point was the name of a plantation, right? Yes, that's right. It was a plantation here from about 1830 to uh, sometime after the Civil War. And it was called a secondary plantation during the time of slavery. So you had names like Poverty Point, uh, Hard Bargain, Lost Hope, anything else? Uh, I think there was one called something like Last Dollar. Not exactly the name you want on your house, but that's exactly where many of the slaves lived. And that's and that name has, has persevered, even though slavery in the plantation homes have long since gone, at least in this area, I mean the homes. Uh, but you've been here for 17 years. So you've, you've been dedicated to trying to figure out, literally to unearth the mysteries of the mounds, who was here, what they did here. You know a little bit about what they did here. Yeah, we know some. We know how they built the earthworks and the ridges. We know how they made their stone tools. We know the kinds of foods that they ate. Um, we know quite a bit. And the stories are still continuing because you are literally uncovering finds every single day. Well, when I get out of the office, yeah. Well, if truth be told, and I have witnesses for this, you and I got out of the office, and we went out to Mound F, it's called, and we took our shovels, and we started digging, and I found something. That's right. We were digging a, a small shovel test to see what kinds of activities people were doing out by Mound F, and you found some artifacts. Of course, I'm not allowed to keep them. <laughs> Finders keepers doesn't apply here, but... It is part of the site now, and it helps the archaeologist, of which you are one, to be able to interpret what they could mean and tell those stories. But we still don't really know what those mounds were doing. Yeah, we do, well, we don't know why they built them. Um, you know, they're obviously an important part of the landscape, this whole created landscape here. But um, as to, you know, what their intentions were, why they did it, that we don't know. Of course, if history is any indication, even ancient history, it's location, 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 and the higher up you are, the more prestigious you are, and the more powerful you are. Do you think they might have been just built to, to let folks know that we're in control here? That's, that is certainly one uh, idea about it, yes. But who actually lived here? It was Native Americans. Um, late art, what we would call late archaic, so dating from about 3,700 to 3,100 years ago. And they were hunter-gatherers? Yes, hunter-fisher-gatherers, so we know they were eating a lot of fish. And you know that because? We find a lot of fish bones, or some, most of the, we don't find a whole lot of bone here because the preservation isn't real good, but uh, when we do find bone, a lot of it is fish. And of course... They weren't farming, though. That's right. That's right. They were living off the land. So we have the Mississippi River floodplain that's just 
a stone's throw away, and that would have had a lot of fish, a lot of frogs and turtles and waterfowl. Um, and then up here on Mason Ridge, there were deer and raccoons and uh, squirrels. And as a UNESCO World Heritage Site, it's open to the public. Uh, I think admission is rel relatively nominal. How much is it? It's uh, $4, um, but free for people, I think, 62 and over or three and under. Okay, I think I qualify on one of those. <laughs> but bottom line is, it's available to the public to listen to the stories that are still being told and that are evolving for this very up until this very minute. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there's lots of activities. You can get tours and um, learn to throw a spear with an atlatl and watch them cook with earth ovens. And we have all kinds of activities that people can do. Dr. Greenlee, thanks for having us. Remember, it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site right here in Louisiana. Back with more from our tour of Louisiana right after this. Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Eye on Travel will be right back. been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production. Welcome back everybody. Peter Greenberg here with you as Ion Travel continues on our special state tour of Louisiana. Of course, you can always reach me. You know the drill. Email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. Lots of stuff to talk about. And one is, you know what's coming up this year? Hard to believe. It's The last one was four years ago, the Summer Olympics in France. And uh, get ready for a very expensive summer should you want to go to France this summer. Get ready for this. The Louvre is already raising its basic ticket price from 17 euros to 22 euros. That's a 30% hike. Restaurant prices already way on the way up. And even a ride on the Paris Metro now a little more than $2, is expected to nearly double by the time of the games. And uh, hotel prices? Let's just say, mon dieu, as the French might say. They're already skyrocketing. So if you still want to go to the Olympics, and assume you can even get tickets, remember we're down to a lottery system now, but if you still want to go, here's my advice. Don't fly to Paris. Instead, fly to London. And then take spend a few days in London, it'll be cheaper. And then make Europe a day trip for the Olympics. Take the Eurostar from London to Paris, go to the Olympic Games, and come back. Otherwise, you'll be spending a whole lot more money. Speaking about spending a lot more money for airline fares, 2024 is going to be a very interesting year if you listen to the analysts. They're all predicting, again, a record travel year this year with record profits. And the top trend for us Americans, once again, just like 2023, to travel internationally. With average airfares, fasten your seatbelt, this is overseas travel, expected to increase by 10%. Well, is there any good news? Well, actually, there might be. Domestic travel may, in fact, be more affordable this year. Uh, Kayak did some research, and they revealed that domestic airfare will drop at least, get ready, 16% in, in this year. Pretty cool, right? Domestic hotel rates expected to drop 9%. And rental car rates, remember, they got their supply chain issues finally resolved. And uh, now those rental car rates could be dropping as much as 
14%. So maybe this is the year to rediscover America. So something to think about. All right, let's go to some of your emails. Here's one from Bethany who writes, and this is an interesting one. Uh, Are there any vacation work holidays available for those who would like to travel to Lahaina and Maui and assist the residents in rebuilding the town after the tragic fire? Well, it's a really good question, but i got to break it up because it's not about Lahaina. That's closed off. In fact, it's a devastated area. You're not going to get in. But Maui itself, you bet there are a number of things you can do. Remember, Lahaina is not anywhere near close to even starting a rebuilding phase. They're still in the debris removal phase or the debris management phase, as I like to say. But plenty of volunteer opportunities throughout the rest of the island, uh, but none that include accommodations. So the Hua Monoma Farms uh, Foundation in Kapalua, you can actually volunteer to work on a farm. Uh, from kitchen prep to food delivery to farming to harvesting and help packaging food for the people who need it the most. Uh, you can get more information at H-U-A-M-O-M-O-N-A, Hua Monona, Hua Momona, excuse me, farms. Uh, we'll have that on our website, by the way. Uh, there are also opportunities for volunteering through the Hands-On Maui Volunteer Center, and that includes Volunteer opportunities at the Disaster Response Donation Center. By the way, I've been there. They do need the help. Volunteering with food distribution and sorting. And volunteer outreach. There's so much that comes under that category. You want more information on that? It's handsonmaui.com. That's also available. So keep in mind that a lot of people now are going to Maui as part of their regular vacation, but they're devoting three or four hours a day to what? Kakua. You know what Kakua means? That's giving back without being asked. How cool that is. And uh, you can do it, too. And many hotels are, are good resources for letting you know how you can help. Why are they such good resources? Because so many of their own employees were, were so da- badly affected uh, by the fires. In fact, many of them are homeless. Many of them have lost their jobs. It's, uh, it's not a pretty picture. So, again, and by the way, this applies not just to Maui, but it applies to so many other places around the world where there's been a disaster and you can go and help. Now, you're not a first responder. This comes way after the first response issues, but you can do it. And you know what? You should do it. That would be my, my suggestion to you. Uh, the other thing is this. Uh, speaking, of, speaking of where you want to go, uh, the folks at Hilton uh, looked at the top five search destinations by website on their website. You know what number five was? Hawaii. Not a surprise because they're apparently coming back, right? Number four? This is the one that always amazes me of the top search destinations, Las Vegas. This is a destination that continues to add hotel rooms and continues to fill them. They just opened up the Fountain Blue, um, and they're filled. It's crazy. Las Vegas broke the rule book when it comes to resilience and travel. That's all I can say. That was number four. Number three, a place that always ranks near the top for Americans, that's Cancun. Mexico is easy. It's close. And the top two search destinations at Hilton, no surprises here. Number two, it's Mickey's Mickey's House, Orlando. And at number one, which always wins interest, you know that, New York City. Now, that doesn't mean you need to go there, but at least you know where everybody else may be going. Right? I mean, it's just the way it is. That music means we're out of time for this hour. Stick around, everybody, because we've got a whole lot more coming as we continue our tour throughout the state of Louisiana as Ion Travel continues right after this. You've been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. 
Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production. With reporting from around the world, it's time for Eye on Travel with America's number one frontline travel news journalist, Peter Greenberg. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, Peter Greenberg. And welcome back. Peter Greenberg here with you as Eye on Travel continues for this first weekend in January 2024. If you're just joining us, let me tell you where we're broadcasting from. Here's a good one. I can't give you coordinates today because we're traveling throughout the entire state of Louisiana. Part of a special we're doing on PBS called Hidden Louisiana. But of course, we'll be in New Orleans, some of the usual suspects, some of the unusual suspects. Baton Rouge, Shreveport, and many other places in between. Of course, you can always reach me. You know the drill. You email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. At the end of the first hour, I promoted that I was going to talk about my New Year's resolutions. Of course, I'm not going to talk about getting healthier, exercising more, losing weight. I lied last year. Why shouldn't I lie this year? But these are the ones that make sense for all of you listening if you're travelers. 2024 should be the year that we get rid of junk fees altogether. That's New Year's resolution number one. Not just airline junk fees, but hotel junk fees, those dreaded and insidious resort fees that the hotels can't justify, and more often than not, don't even disclose. You're going to start seeing class action lawsuits, action by state attorneys general around the United States, claiming what? Lack of transparency, failure to disclose, and in some cases, fraud. So you're going to see that happen, and then you're going to see the hotels start to be creative, and and instead of calling it a resort fee, they'll call it a destination fee or a hospitality fee. There's nothing hospitable about it. It needs to go. So watch this space. We're certainly going to watch this space, and we'll be reporting on it as it develops throughout the year, but I can almost guarantee you it's, it's targeted now. It's targeted in the courts. It's targeted in legislation, and it's targeted by the Federal Trade Commission as well, as part of their ongoing investigation. So stay, stay tuned on that one. That's resolution number one. Resolution number two is airline scheduling. The people who do airline scheduling have taken a little too much acid. You cannot schedule connecting flights with less than a 33-minute connect time. You know, in the first hour, you talked to me, uh, you, talked to me uh, you heard me talk about, excuse me, evacuating a plane or even leaving a plane. If you're sitting in the back of a plane, it's going to take you 12 to 14 minutes to leave the plane once it lands safely, assuming it gets to the gate. I'm going to talk about that in a second. So why are you scheduling 33-minute connect times? It's absurd. It's suicidal. It doesn't work for anybody. It also doesn't work for the airlines, right? It doesn't work for their crews. It doesn't work for their fuel burn. It doesn't work for crews timing out because they're working too long. It's ridiculous. So until the airlines come to their senses on that, you need to do something else. You need to, when you book a flight that's a connecting flight, never give yourself less than a two-and-a-half-hour connect time between flights because, you know, the flights are all full. And if you miss that second connecting flight, even if the airline wants to be nice to you and put you on their next available flight, that next available flight may be next Tuesday, and you're spending the night in that stupid rocking chair at the Charlotte airport, and that's not where you wanted to be, with all due respect to Charlotte. All right, that's scheduling in terms of takeoffs and connecting flights. But then there's something else. The airports need to do a New Year's Year's resolution on capacity. 
Whether you're a runway in Mumbai or Miami, there's not a runway that can accommodate more than 23 takeoffs in any one-hour period, right? Two and a half minutes between separation of flights, you do the math. So why are the airlines allowed to come into an airport and schedule 40 departures at 8 o'clock in the morning? I mean, right there is fraud, right? Certainly not truth in scheduling. The airports need to weigh in here and say we're not going to pick favorites. Their resolution should be we're going to do a lottery. American, you got to take off at 9.03. Now, we're not going to tell you where to fly. We're not going to tell you what aircraft to fly. We're just going to tell you, you can take a plane off at 9.03. And Delta, you can go at 9.07. And United, you can go at 9.11. And the 10 o'clock hour, you'll, sh- you know, you'll, you'll, you'll shift it up and redo the time slot so that nobody's getting favorites. Wouldn't that be easier? Okay. Here's another one about airports. De-icing. This is Neanderthal the way it's being done now. Every airline insists that they have to do their own de-icing. So what does that mean? Hey, it's this time of the year, right? Before you can push back from the gate, you've got to get de-iced. And the truck comes over and sprays everything. You've seen it. It, it, And sometimes the smell gets in the plane. These are toxic liquids, folks. And then by the time they're finished, you go back on a long line on the runway. And by the time it's your turn to take off, you've got to get de-iced again. Why don't they follow the French model? The French have been doing this right for years. The French have said the airports will do the de-icing, not the airlines, and we're putting de-icing stations at the end of each runway. So you push back from the gate. It's like a car wash. You push back from the gate. You taxi to the, to the runway. And right before you turn to go on the runway, you go through the de-icing machines. And you come out, and you're good to go. And there's a facility out there to collect all the toxic fluids for recycling so that it doesn't pollute. It's a win-win for everybody. Why haven't they done it? That's another New Year's resolution. And one more I'll give you, my New Year's resolution on what you do when the plane lands. How many times have you landed when you're told there's no gate available? Now, the airline has known for hours what time you were landing. There were no surprises there. You know, when the airplane pushes back from the gate, it activates a system called the ACARS, and that sends a message to the arriving airport saying, you know, Peter Greenberg's flight 409 will be landing at 811. So it's not like we land at 8.11 they go, oh, we had no idea. No, they knew four hours earlier it's going to be 8.11. But they'd already assigned us a gate. There's the problem. If the plane at the gate hasn't left, we're waiting for a gate. There's fuel burn, misconnected passengers, misconnected bags. Who wins in that? Nobody. Even cruise timeout. So three cheers to American Airlines. They finally figure this out. They're going to test it at their major airports like Dallas and Charlotte. They're not assigning gates ahead of time. So that when my flight lands in Dallas, they're going to say, what's the next available gate that's open? All right, to the pilot of that plane, that's the gate you're going to. And that's the gate you're arriving at. And the plane that becomes a different flight number at that gate, still going to take you 45 minutes to an hour to turn that plane. That means passengers at DFW will go find that plane at that gate. How much time have you saved? How much fuel have you saved? How much misconnecting passengers, misconnecting bags have you saved? It's a no-brainer. So we're going to see how that works out, right? Now, one of the resolutions they tried last year, and they're trying to test it right now, United is, is a new boarding procedure called WILMA, window, middle, aisle. That's how they're going to board first, right? Window, then middle, then aisle. Makes sense, right? No clogging congestion in the aisle. Well, that would be great if they didn't have eight other boarding groups. How about no boarding groups now, right? And you board first class last. You board from the back to the front, window, middle, aisle, 
And guess what happens? Plane takes off on time. You do it any other way, whatever's well-intentioned completely collapses. Now, we all know why people want to board first, because the airlines made us do that. Remember all the extra seats they've been adding? There are too many seats on the plane, which means if you're adding one carry-on bag per passenger, there's not enough space in the overhead compartments or even in the seats under in front of you to accommodate those bags. And everybody knows it, so they run to be on the plane first. That's how many bags get checked at the gate, also creating a delay. So let's get smart. Let's figure all these things out. And I'll check back with you, not next January. I'll check back with you in like six months to see if any of my New Year's wishes are actually going to come to fruition. Because when they do, that's when flying gets just a little bit better. After all, it's a new year. And when we come back, we'll be talking to my pal Gary Leff, the author of ViewFromTheWing.com, as Ion Travel continues on our tour through Louisiana. Back right after this. Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Ion Travel will be right back. Once again, here's Peter Greenberg. And we're back. Peter Greenberg here with you, welcoming in a new year, 2024, our first show of the year, as we continue on our state tour of Louisiana. And of course, you know how to reach me. Just email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. I always want to start the year the way we ended it by talking to our good pal, Gary Leff, the founder of viewfromthewing.com, required reading for me and hopefully for you as well. So I welcome you back, Mr. Gary Leff. Happy New Year. Uh, Happy New Year to you, Peter, and to uh, all the listeners as well. So let's talk about how we ended the year and then how we might be beginning it. We saw a year in which the airlines continued to devalue their frequent flyer points and their programs. Uh, We saw a year in which airfares were, uh, well, well, almost historic highs, uh, especially for overseas flights. Uh, We saw a year in which uh, we saw hotel rates that were also near historic highs. And if you just listen to the airlines and believe them, they will tell you that that's not, that, that will also continue this year. I'm not so sure I believe that, but as we enter a new year, I'm, of course, I'm seeing lots of quick airfare sales out there uh, that have limited times and probably expire 36 hours after you see them and the, and the fares are maybe only good till the end of, of April or early May. But there seems to be every indication that the demand curve, at least for the summer, is going to be just as strong. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of it obviously has to do with the economy, things outside the control of the airlines uh, and outside the control of any customers. If the economy is doing well, there's a lot of demand. What we seen over the last couple of years as airlines weren't bringing back their schedules as quickly uh, after the pandemic as people were demanding travel. And airlines had let go of staff. They had to rehire. There had to be training. They had retired aircraft. And so it just has taken time for supply to catch up. It's largely caught up. Uh, the question is, you know, what that demand looks like going forward. We're also going to see in the coming years just a lot of aircraft delivery. Uh, and so we're going to see more supply and you know, airlines are going to have to sell those seats. So I think you know, even if we only see a little bit of moderation in the coming year, you know, I, I don't think we're going to see things as high as we've seen them in, say, 2025 and six. Of course, the original projections that we heard as recently as two weeks ago was that or were that international airfares would go up about 10 percent year over year, 2024 versus 2023. But that domestic airfares could be down as much as 16 percent. 
Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical that we see you know, such an increase internationally. And again, the domestic especially is going to be so much driven by you know the economy. I, I don't see the return of managed business travel much above the levels that it's been stuck at, you know, 20, 25% below 2019. And it would have grown from 2019. And so we're not back anywhere close to trends. So you know, those those fares were what always drove those uh, you know, highest pricing. And we're not not seeing that. So yeah, domestic, uh, there's a lot of potential weakness there. But again, we're just going to have to see. I think a lot of folks have been very surprised by the resilience of the economy. You know, keep betting that it won't be sustained. And, you know, maybe finally they'll be right. We'll have to find out. Well, shifting gears here to an area that I know you're very familiar with, uh, the U.S. Department of Transportation announcing that they're sort of starting an investigation into the airline frequent flyer programs. What does that mean? Yeah. So, you know, it's, it, it's sort of funny because, you know, airline frequent flyer programs, is more or less due to consumers what they wish. Um, in fact, that they're not the only ones that think that. The position of the Supreme Court has been that a consumer can't sue their frequent flyer program for something like a common law duty of good faith and fair dealing. That was 2014's Northwest versus Ginsburg. Uh, and so the only avenue of redress under the Airline Deregulation Act is to complain to the Department of Transportation. But the DOT's own inspector general found in, uh, when it investigated that DOT has in the past improperly ignored consumer complaints about frequent fire programs. So DOT has signaled that they want to you know, look into changing that. Now, a, a couple of caveats. One, it comes after complaints by a couple of senators who are just mad at the airlines. Uh, you know, Dick Durbin has new legislation that he wants to uh, limit credit card interchange, which is what drives the lucrative credit card partnerships for the airlines, the profitability of their frequent flyer programs, and the airlines have complained. And so in revenge for that, you know, he wants DOT to investigate those programs. But of course, he also wants to make those programs less profitable and probably cause them to be devalued further. So you know, there's a little bit of, um, of, of, of motive questions in that. And you know, we probably don't see anything out of DOT um, in the current um, you know, Biden administration. So it's very much, I think, a question of what happens in the coming presidential election, whether DOT does anything. And you know, there, I guess I would say that consumers have been largely ignored by DOT. Probably they shouldn't be. But at the same time, um, you know, I would tread a little bit lightly because I think there's still a lot of value in the programs that could be kind of mucked up with new rules. Well, I've got one for you. Based on, well, based on just my own intuition, I'll make you bet. You mentioned presidential election. How about this? How about I declare my candidacy for president? And I run on only okay. one. And I run on only one platform. That if you earn frequent flyer miles, you get to redeem them at a reasonable level. I think I'd win in a landslide. Peter, you'd have my vote. <laughs> I mean, seriously, because I mean, do you know how many individual frequent flyer accounts there are in the United States? Well, you know, each of the largest programs claims over a hundred million uh, members, um, though not necessarily active. Um, so. How much duplication between those? It's it's certainly the case that um, you know a majority of people in the United States have accounts attached to their names. They do. It's three hundred and fifty-four million. That's larger than, than than the population of the United States. And of course, we could then argue that a lot of people are members of more than one program. But the bottom line is, I, I could get a majority of those three hundred and fifty-four million votes just on that platform alone. I think. <laughs> <laughs> 
I think you should do it. Or how about this? Vote for me, fly free. No, okay. Um, <laughs> but, but at least, uh, you know, what, what's happened at the end of 2023 and obviously is lapping over into this year is that the airline's management and rule changes of their frequent flyer programs have now gotten additional attention from regulators. They, they have, and I think that there that there'll be more attention from regulators um, going forward, not just to the frequent flyer programs. You know, uh, an advisor to uh, Elizabeth Warren, who teaches law at Vanderbilt University, has a new uh, book arguing to re-regulate the airlines. I, I don't think it's a good idea, but it's going to really jumpstart that conversation among you know certain segments of um, you know of the political classes and we're going to you know see more discussion of that and the airlines haven't really uh, gotten started pushing back on that yet do you see in the coming 12 months a continuing devaluation of at least from a consumer perspective of the value of their frequent flyer points well you know here's the interesting thing is um, one airline that really sticks out to me in a positive way is Alaska Airlines that has announced 2024 new award pricing that's pretty darn good. Um, they've announced changes to their elite status program that are pretty darn good. Um, and actually by removing the requirement that you actually have to have a minimum number of flights on Alaska Airlines to earn their status, um, they become pretty attractive to American Airlines customers because Alaska's elites are treated basically the same as Americans own, even when flying American. Um, and so the strength in Alaska uh, in some ways serves as a um, check on um, negative changes perhaps on the American side, a, su a suggestion that maybe American won't um, make too many negative changes, although I do probably see at some point uh, increases in the pricing of Americans' award tickets for era, their partner airlines. Uh, as far as Delta goes, I mean, the long-term trajectory is going to be down as it's been down. Um, they've told us that. They made a big announcement about changes they wanted to make next year that they rolled out, but rolled back, but only temporarily. They've told us it's only temporary. The changes to their elite status program and their miles have become worth less and less for, you know, consistently over the years. That's not going to uh, miraculously change. Uh, they have told us that their, their, their philosophy at Delta is ne not necessarily to be the most rewarding in terms of their points. Um, so that's, you a know, great, that's, a great, that's a great philosophy. Yeah, I mean, their view is that they, you know, want people to pick them because of the total package of, you know, they, they, they have a good brand and people like flying them maybe marginally more. And, um, you know, they used to be much more reliable. They're still marginally more uh, reliable than many of their competitors, but not as much as, not as big a difference as it so, used to be. So, you know what, um, I'm going to make a suggestion that going into 2024, before your frequent flyer miles are the equivalent of Venezuelan currency, Think at least 330 days out and redeem them for whatever you can as fast as you can. How about that? I, look, I mean, I'm not, I, I would say <laughs> that your miles aren't going to be worth more tomorrow than they're worth today. I rest they're my certainly case. not a place. They're not a place to save for travel and retirement. Um, <laughs> you should be earning points. Um, and spending them roughly in the same period, and then go earn more. Um, but then devaluation doesn't really affect you if you're you know, earning at the same time you know, and consistent with the same pricing that's charged at that time. So, you know, yeah, I think you should earn and burn. Okay, well, we're going to earn, burn, and say goodbye. Gary Left, Happy New Year, sir. Founder of ViewFromTheWing.com, required reading. I'll speak to you early and often 
in 2024. And we'll be back. Happy New Year. Right after this. And Happy New Year. Have a travel question or problem? Just email Peter at peter at petergreenberg.com and we'll solve it on the air. more information on what you've heard have a travel question or comment just log on to petergreenberg.com now here's peter peter greenberg back with you as ion travel continues from the state of louisiana as you know we've been traveling all over the state if you go about a hundred and so on miles from new orleans about an hour and a half away you'll find yourself in baton rouge but if you really look hard you're going to find a very special building on the campus of lsu and it's the institute for marine and river studies and joining me now clint wilson who runs the joint but this is unlike any institute i've ever seen with modeling about the mississippi river i've never seen either clint thanks so much for letting us come out to the institute you're welcome i'm glad to have you and glad to talk about the work we're doing and share the excitement that we have and the passion for our coast you know, it's it's more than excitement and passion for the coast. It's remembering the past. It's it's looking at history, going back to, I mean, the first time anybody kind of woke up about New Orleans and the Mississippi River, of course, was Katrina back in 2005. And uh, a lot has been done since then in terms of modeling, studying, and trying to avoid those problems. But it goes beyond that. It's about the actual flow of the river itself uh, all the way through the state. That's right, Peter. And, you know, what, what we have to remember is that the Mississippi River formed south central southeast louisiana coast and until we levied it until we built all that engineering infrastructure the river was allowed to continue to nourish maintain those wetlands and that coastal land once we built the levees when we, we did it for economic reasons and to protect people from, from flooding but once we did that we disconnected those wetlands and now we've seen significant land loss up to 2,000 square miles over the last 80 years and probably another 2,000 square miles in the next 50. 2,000 square miles? Yes, that's correct. About the size of maybe the state of Delaware. And it's still continuing. And that's right. So we're going to continue to see that land loss occurring over the next, well, into the future. Well, you know, when we talk about global warming and climate change and now loss of land, loss, loss of coastline, the inevitable question is, is it inevitable? It's one thing to study it. Can you stop it? Well, we can't stop it. We don't have enough resources, whether that's money, whether that's sediment in the river, et cetera. We can't stop it. So what we have to do and what the state's Coastal Protection Restoration Authority has done is they've created a master plan where they have looked and said, what's a, real, what's a, a sustainable footprint that we can maintain the land, we can protect the communities and the industries from flooding? And once they've kind of defined that, within the constraints of the money that's available and the resources that are available, then I think we can do that. Of course, the Mississippi River has been used for navigation and for transporting goods since day one. You now have barges on the river. You've got some deep sea vis- uh, vessels on the river. Depth is critical. So if you are building those levees, next thing you know, the sand is coming in. And if the sand comes in, you lose depth. If you lose depth, the river becomes not navigable. So what are you actually looking at? Yeah, so one of the things we're looking at is, is, is that sand that's depositing in the bottom of the river and impeding navigation. Now, the Corps of Engineers dredges, mechanically removes that sand and uses that to maybe shore up some of the, lower, the infrastructure along the river or for coastal restoration projects. But what the state's looking at doing is actually building river sediment diversions where they're going to divert some of that sand before it gets down to the lower part of the river. They're going to divert that out into the coastal, the wetlands that are adjacent to the river. Again, those areas that were built by that river water and sand originally. Now, at the Institute here, I know this is radio, but I'm going to try to paint the picture. You've built this most amazing model that puts it all in perspective 
explain this model because it's it's a wow. Well, th- this model is a, a a representation of the actual Mississippi River at a much smaller scale. But what we can do is we can reproduce the flows. We can reproduce the Mississippi River water levels, and we can reproduce the way sand moves down the Mississippi River. And we can do that in a time scale of one year of real Mississippi River time to one hour on our model time. And so we can reproduce, we can look at 5, 10, 15, 20, 50 years of flows and sand transport, and we can see how sea level rise is going to change the availability of sand, how diversions are going to change that, how future flows coming down are going to change the way the river behaves, the availability of that sand, and ultimately provide that information. We provide that information to the engineers and the scientists who are thinking about how are we going to design and operate these structures in the future. How about the naval architects who have to build the ships that have to navigate the river? That's right, and so that's an incredibly important part of this, right, is you know, it, while I talk about diverting the water and the sand, what we have to remember is we cannot impede navigation and we can't increase the flood risk to communities and industries along the river. So it's really kind of a th- three-pronged problem that we're working on. And the same thing happens with, with the concept of depth. If you don't maintain a certain depth of the river, it doesn't matter. That's right, because agricultural community, the petrochemical industry relies upon the river being at least 50 feet deep from the Gulf of Mexico all the way up to Baton Rouge. And if it's not 50 feet deep, that means they can't put as much, many goods or chemicals or products on these vessels. And that means either more costly or it's going to take longer to get things out. You know, I'm one of those guys who always gets angry when you ask kids where food comes from and they tell you the store. You take a look at your modeling here in Baton Rouge and you see exactly where it comes from. That's right. And I think you know, the, this lower river isn't just important to the state of Louisiana. It's really important to a lot of the country as well as around the world. The cool thing is, being LSU, you're nonprofit, and it's open to the public. It is. That's right. It's open to the public. So the first Sunday of every month, we're open in the afternoons. People can come and visit, see the projector system, learn more about the work we're doing. Um, and then also they can contact rivermodel at la.gov to schedule a tour. And you should, because one, until you see this, this is not just a university campus project. It's a destination. You need to come out and visit it to understand cause and effect, because if you don't, you'll be a victim of it. Clint, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate that. And give me the website again. Website is www.coastal.la.gov river. And you know what? When they turn the lights on and you're standing above it and you're seeing it for the first time, that's the first time you get proper perspective and context, something we all very much need. Thanks so much, Clint. You're welcome. And we'll be back with more as Ion Travel travels the entire state of Louisiana right after this. Please remain seated with your seatbelt fastened. Ion Travel will be right back. Now, back to Eye on Travel. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome back to Eye on Travel as we continue our journey throughout the state of Louisiana. You know how you can reach me. You know the drill. You just email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question, or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. In the last segment, we talked about an unbelievable institute studying the Mississippi River right here in Baton Rouge, and about maybe six minutes away over by the stadium, where I might add the, uh, the Tigers continue to win, you'll find something else, a surprise for most of you who just think that LSU has a 
football team. They also have a baseball team. In fact, 2023 national champions, if I remember correctly. And joining me now, the coach of that team, Jay Johnson. Peter, how you doing? I'm doing okay. You had me batting a little batting practice today. How'd I do? I think defense is your strongest skill, but you gave it a great effort. So I caught the ball. Yes, you did, which is important. If they don't score, you're guaranteed to win. So you'll keep me on the team for just for that position alone. But the bottom line is, you know, when we talk about universities, and we talked about this the other day about the University of Wisconsin and Madison, where I went, it's not just a university, it's a destination. It's an experience. It's something you should visit because there's so many things to offer, even if you're not a student there. I mean, how many people does this stadium hold? 13,000. For a baseball stadium. And you fill it. Yes, sir. We have the best fans in the country, whether it's a Tuesday night in-state game against a mid-major or a key SEC weekend. Uh, it's full, and our fans provide energy uh, that's unbelievable. It's a big lift to our team, and in my opinion, the best home field advantage in all of college baseball. Now, it's one thing to talk about the LSU Tiger football team. Uh, recently, we, were, uh, <laughs> we watched as they beat Army. Um, this is a real score, 62 to nothing. So they're, they're, they're formidable. Uh, but people forget, you guys have fielded a, a lot of champions. Yes, I think that's an amazing thing about LSU is in this state, everybody supports LSU. I really believe the state of Louisiana is built around LSU. And so all of our programs get unrivaled support in college athletics. And uh, Skip Bertman, the legendary coach that came here and won five of the seven national championships, uh, really made this the premier program in all of, all of college baseball. And it's an honor to be a part of that now and to be the coach and, and be a part of a powerhouse athletic program. Of course, there's a legacy associated with this university and your championships, and that's because so many of your players get drafted. Yes, and uh, very proud to say in 2023, we actually broke the SEC conference record with uh, 13 players drafted, and uh, we will be seeing several of them in the major leagues over the next few years. When people come to Baton Rouge, and you came from where? University of Arizona. So a big difference in culture, a big difference in climate, big difference in everything. You went from the dry heat to humidity. I know that for a fact. What was the biggest surprise to you for, about Baton Rouge? You know, I think the the fans and the support living up to the hype. You know, when you thought about LSU, you'd think about big crowds, uh, game day atmosphere, home field advantage, interest in the program. And I wasn't sure it could live up to the thought that I had in my mind. <laughs> it has more than exceeded that. Our, the people in the state are amazing, and how they get behind us is really special. Is baseball big in the state of Louisiana in terms of high school? Yes, there's terrific athletes in this state. I think it's a baseball state. I think it's a football state. I'm sure we know about Friday Night Lights. Yes, for sure. I think uh, what I've been most impressed with is the athleticism of the players close around our campus. And a lot of them are multiple sport athletes. And as they devote themselves to one sport or another, in our case, baseball, and develop a skill set on top of that athleticism, then you can create something that's pretty special. Now, did you ever play the game? Football? No, oh, baseball. Oh, yes, absolutely. I, I played football, too. I was actually. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> Sorry. Um, uh, I, I, baseball is a middle infielder, shortstop, second baseman. Um, was one of those players that had to do all the little things to, to help my team win. And you, know, so you, were, you were the Pee Wee Reese of the game. Something like that, yes. Um, but that type or style of player, I really believe, has aided me in my, my coaching philosophy because – Coaching, you're trying to build your players towards winning baseball and, and all the things that encompass that. And, 
you know, as a player, having to be that type of team first, you know, type player, I believe has really helped shape me as a coach. Now, the cool thing about college sports is, as opposed to professional sports, is when you're doing a practice or you're doing a scrimmage, anybody can come out and watch. Yes, and uh, there'll be a good four or five hundred people, you know, out here. Sometimes a thousand, just to see what the Tigers are going to look like, and uh, it's really awesome. You know, it's it's a one of a type place or one of a kind place in regards to that type of support. People want to know what we look like in the fall to anticipate what we're going to look like in the spring, and pretty awesome. And your season starts what January, February? We start uh, team practice in in January, and then. I believe first game is February 17th this year. And that'll go through? Hopefully the end of June, College World Series. Omaha, Nebraska. Omaha, best place in the world if you're a college baseball coach for sure. Jay Johnson, the coach here of the LSU Tiger baseball team. Thanks for letting me hit batting practice today, and you're still talking to me on my dad. You did a great job out there. It's awesome to be with you. We'll be back with more from Louisiana as Ion Travel continues without my baseball injuries right after this. Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Ion Travel will be right back. You've been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production. Peter Greenberg here back with you again as Ion Travel continues on our statewide tour of Louisiana. You know you can always reach me. You know the drill. Just email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question, and problem. We will solve it right here on the air. Uh, let's go to one. I've got one right here, which is a very interesting question, and that's this. It comes from uh, Florence, and she goes, I'm 70, single, female, and retired. I'd love to visit Auschwitz in Poland. What's the best, most timely way to do that alone? Uh, I live in Brooklyn. I have no one to travel with, and I'm not crazy about groups. Well, you're sort of boxing yourself in there, Florence. Uh, I have strict dietary restrictions for weight and health, so I would need to bring my own food. Also, the best way to trade dollars there. Well, the U.S. dollar works wonders in Poland, not to worry about that. But let's get you some more details that you need to know. Yes, you can do this on your own. Once you get to Warsaw, there are many trains that are very efficient that will take you from Warsaw to Auschwitz. Uh, and uh, there are, in fact, it, uh, it's about a one and a half mile walk from the train station to the memorial once you get there. Uh, there are early trains that start like at 5.33 in the morning uh, that get there about 9.44. You want to get there early, by the way. Uh, and it's about a four to five hour train ride, so plan accordingly. Uh, and then, and the, and the way it goes, it's about a two or three hour train ride from Warsaw to Krakow, and then another train ride between one and two hours, uh, or actually a half hour ride uh, into, uh, into Auschwitz. And then, of course, plenty of options on the return. The round trip train ticket, very reasonable, 40 bucks. Uh, now, admission to Auschwitz-Birkenau is free of charge, but you have to reserve them visit.auschwitz.org and uh, and you can also reserve someone and I think this is a very good idea to have a guide with you who can tell the stories that you need to do and put it in proper in proper context because without that you're just looking at buildings and not knowing what really happened there and the stories that need to be told that's another thing to do and you can do that easily and not expensively uh, 
then uh, you also, you know, now you're not going uh, to uh, go in an organized group because I know you hate them, but you do have to have your personalized entry pass and ID with you, okay? And, uh, and that's it. Now, there are fees charged for engaging a, a guide, but I'm telling you it's worth it, and you get to go at your own pace then. You're not being led in a, in a group, which I know you already hate, okay? So there you go. And I will have to warn you about something else, Florence. Many of you know that we did a one-hour special uh, called the, the Royal Tour of Poland with the Prime Minister, and he took me to Auschwitz. Uh, there are very few experiences in my life as a traveler that were more emotional, more devastating, uh, and, and gave you so much time, required time, to, uh, to collect your thoughts. So be prepared for an emotional experience, but one that I think is essential. It goes back to the famous quote that those who cannot remember the past are doomed to repeat it. So I hope that uh, that's helpful, and I look forward to hearing from you when you come back about your experiences. A uh, couple of other things I want to mention. Uh, you know, national parks, always overcrowded these days. Uh, when we talk about Yosemite and Grand Canyon and Yellowstone, uh, many many national parks in 2024 are either going to restrict entrance or charge an entrance fee between $10 and $20 per person and $35 per vehicle. But if you plan properly, all the national park sites are open and free of charge on Martin Luther King Day. That's coming up. Uh, the first day of National Park Week in April, Juneteenth, Great American Outdoors Day in August, National Public Lands Day in September, Veterans Day in November. So you still have to check ahead with each park because of the loads, because even the fee-free days require a timed entry or vehicle reservation in advance. But at least now you know the days that you can get in for free if you plan properly. Now, speaking about fees, you know, we talk about this is the year. It's one of my New Year's resolutions to get rid of junk fees. Well, they're getting crazier and crazier. How about a $23 charge from Frontier Airlines for just buying your ticket online? Why? Frontier isn't alone. Many discount airlines in Europe, Asia, and Australia are also assessing the same fee. But I'm afraid that's just for starters. Uh, in fact, if you, if you do the math, some of these fees can often double or triple the real cost of your flight. Yeah, you check bag fees, carry-on bag fees, seat selection fees, and in some cases, the cost of your flight just went up a staggering. Are you sitting? 736%. And in some cases, the cost of just a carry-on bag, that's right, just a carry-on bag, is $58. Now, is it about to get worse? Uh, maybe. Under a new federal law, the rule requiring airlines to honestly display all the fares and fees that you may have to pay for your flight and do so in the same location, typeface, and font is going away. That means that many airlines will now only display a misleading base airfare that doesn't include taxes, security fees, airport charges, and, oh yes, those additional junk fees. So for the moment, 2024 remains the year caveat emptor and be on your guard because the base fare that's displayed online with about a 92% chance is not the fare you're going to end up paying. So be aware of that, budget accordingly, and let's hope our legislators get their act together to get rid of these insidious junk fees. That music means we're out of time for this hour. Stick around, everybody. We've got a whole lot more as we continue our state tour of Louisiana as Ion Travel continues right after this.
You've been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production. With reporting from around the world, it's time for Eye on Travel with America's number one frontline travel news journalist, Peter Greenberg. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, Peter Greenberg. And welcome back to Ion Travel for this first weekend of January 2024. Peter Greenberg here with you, and I hope you had a great New Year's. But if you want to know where we're broadcasting from, usually I give you coordinates every hour, and they're the same coordinates. Not this week. We're traveling throughout the state. One state in particular, here are the latest coordinates. 32 degrees, 31 minutes north, 93 minutes 45 minutes west. We are in Shreveport, Louisiana, which is a fascinating city that doesn't get a lot of love. I remember the reason why I wanted to come to Shreveport is because way back when, when I was a correspondent for Newsweek based in the Houston Bureau, my assignment was Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, and Louisiana. And I went all over those states, and it was eye-opening to me about the culture, the music, the history, uh, and of course the politics. But bottom line, it was fascinating stuff then, and it's fascinating now. And where are we coming from in this hour? We're starting off in the Ryman Auditorium. Anybody remember what the Ryman Auditorium was famous for? Probably not. Remember these words? Elvis has left the building. That's right. He performed here in the Ryman Auditorium. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. One of his very first performances where the place went wild. And, of course, nobody uh, wanted to stay after he left the building. They wanted to chase him. And, of course, the words, Elvis has left the building, kept the audience in to see the rest of the show. How'd you like to follow Elvis back then? Some great history there, some great stories there. We'll be talking about it. But the cool thing about Louisiana, as we've discovered, we're doing a one-hour special for PBS and Amazon and Apple TV as part of my series called Hidden. It's all about hidden Louisiana. Uh, Adventures and experiences that are available to everybody, but you may not even know about them. And uh, this state has dozens of them, including things like a UNESCO World Heritage Site that nobody knows about. Uh, This Ryman Auditorium story that very few people know about. Of course, some food and culinary activities, some geological activities and archaeological activities. True surprises here in this state. And we'll be doing that throughout this hour. Of course, you can always reach me. You know the drill. You email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We'll solve it right here and there. We'll be doing some more emails and calls later in this segment. But first, in the first two hours, I talked about, you know, things that were really, you know, ticking me off about air safety In our second hour, we talked about my New Year's resolutions, but I forgot one I wanted to mention, and that's the word disability and travel. How do you define that, right? Because 19% of the American public has a disability. It can be sight impairment, hearing impairment, or mobility. And, you know, we need to honor that. We need to make that accessible for everybody with a disability so they can experience travel and experience it well. With the, with the least amount of obstruction. But there's a problem. And the problem is the people who take advantage of that word disability. I'm serious. Uh, we call them miracle flights. And here's how it works. 
You see, under the law, if I am about to take a flight and I call the night before and I ask for wheelchair assistance, they are not allowed to ask me what my disability is. They provide a wheelchair. And no proof, no letter from a doctor, no nothing. So I get the wheelchair assistance. What does that mean? Well, for starters, I get to check in first. I get to go through security in a faster way. And then at the gate, I get to board first. Why are they called miracle flights? Well, there's some routes in this country that are taken advantage of more than other routes. The number one abused route, LaGuardia to West Palm Beach, Florida. That, those are the number one miracle flights that flight attendants dread. Why? Because I've seen as many as 45 wheelchairs waiting to board that flight to, to West Palm Beach. Well, when you ask for wheelchair assistance getting on the plane, the airline also provides wheelchair assistance to get off the plane. But a funny thing happened on the flight from LaGuardia to West Palm Beach. When the plane lands and there are 45 wheelchairs on the jetway waiting for these people, they can suddenly walk. Oh, by the way, not just walk, run. Is this fair? Is this ethical? Is this moral? No, it's an abuse. Remember emotional support animals? Same problem. It's gotten a little better, but not totally better. But one of the gate agents the other day at JetBlue, when we were talking about it, you know what she said to me? <laughs> she said, we, we don't call them miracle flights. We call it Jetway Jesus. <laughs> yep, Jetway Jesus is working. Folks, if you're listening to me and you know somebody who's pulled this scam, tell them to stop it. They'll be punished in the afterlife, if not in this life. And if you know somebody who has a disability, they're not being well served by all the scammers. So my, one of my New Year's resolutions is for people to take a, a much deeper and stronger look, a more focused look at the definition of the word disability, so that the people who truly have a disability, whether it's sight impairment, hearing impairment, or a mobility issue, can be properly helped so that they can travel better and with less stress and less, and less obstacles. But for everybody else who's scamming the system, shame on you. And let's hope we start the new year with that shame being properly transmitted and hopefully properly trans uh, received because it's just sad to watch it happen knowing that under the current rules, the airlines can't question people as to what their disability is. Okay? You with me on that, guys? All right. And then one more New Year's resolution, which I hope will we'll hit home, and that is... You know, we saw what happened during the pandemic where United Airlines said, okay, no more change fees. If you can't make the flight and you cancel, it'll go into a credit into your account that you can use for the next year. That was reasonable. That was reasonable. Now, that's happening in the U.S. now. It's happened for the last two and a half years, and it's worked very well. People are not getting abused by draconian ticket change fees, and they actually have the money they can use on another flight. But it's not being done overseas. Other airlines are abusing this terribly and, and pocketing the difference. There needs to be more monitoring of how airlines are behaving overseas, whether it's through you know, a, a European you know, union agency or an investigative unit. Uh, this also happens to happen in the South Pacific. We saw airlines that were selling tickets for flights that didn't exist last year and then not giving the money back. By the way, the name of that airline was Qantas, and their chairman had to resign. 
But the point is they were able to get away with it. Folks, all the more reason why you should use the Internet in the year 2024 to research and not necessarily to buy. Always have a conversation. Make this the year you actually talk to somebody. You'll be well rewarded with information you can actually use and know it's verifiable. The Internet is a great research tool. It can't have a conversation with you. It can't answer your questions. And believe me, there are questions you need to ask. So I hope that as we enter a new year, with fewer airlines, by the way, and more consolidation, and sadly less competition, that someone will just get wise at the consumer level and realize that the Internet may not be your friend. It's a tool, but it may not be the answer. All right? When we come back to Louisiana, we'll be in Shreveport and a visit to the legendary Ryman Auditorium, where history really did happen. Back with more. I Am Travel continues from Louisiana right after this. Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Ion Travel will be right back. Once again, here's Peter Greenberg. Peter Greenberg here back with you as Ion Travel continues on our tour throughout the entire state of Louisiana. We've been in Monroe, New Orleans, Baton Rouge, Bossier City, and I'm coming to you now from the notoriously interesting, famous, iconic Municipal Auditorium in Shreveport, Louisiana, where so many musical careers were started and so many of them exploded. It's an iconic building with such great history. I'm joined by Winston Hall, who's a great performer as well as a music historian here. Winston, just walking into this building, the first thing you do, of course, is you don't just look out, you look up. It's so imposing. When it was built when? So this building was built in November of 1929, dedicated in November of 1929. And at that time, it was dedicated to those who served in the World War, the Great War, because they didn't know there'd be a World War II. So it's written in stone across the front. And the building was way ahead of its time in terms of acoustics, way ahead of its time in terms of design. And then there was something called the Louisiana Hayride. Some of my listeners may be old enough to remember it because it was like the number one radio show, 50,000 watt radio broadcast live every Saturday across the airwaves of America. Yes, it's something, the Louisiana Hayride is something that turns up in all music literature at some point because it influenced an entire generation of American musicians. The waves of this radio program that broadcast from downtown Shreveport were bouncing across the country. Singers like Buddy Holly and Waylon Jennings and even Elvis up in Memphis were hearing this radio program that originated right here in this building on this stage. And you'll see that influence if you read enough just how widespread it was as it, as it filled every corner of the United States with this musical magic coming out of this building. So this building essentially was a music mecca everybody wanted to get here. Yes, so the Louisiana Hayride was known as the Cradle of the Stars, and the idea was you could come here, get your start, and if you became popular enough, the Grand Ole Opry up in Nashville would give you a call and you go up there and go on to fame and fortune. The first best example of that was Hank Williams. When Hank Williams came to town, he still wasn't really that well known. And he came on as one of the earliest performers of the Hayride. And he started singing a song called Love Sick Blues, which when it was released, just sold a gazillion records. And Hank Williams became this huge figure, prominent star. And then the Grand Ole Opry came calling and off he went. 
And of course, back in 1955, Elvis was here. Yeah, so at the tail end of 54 in the fall was when a young kid named Elvis Presley showed up here. And at the time, he was, people weren't really sure what he was. He was, you know, slick hair, wearing a pink jacket the first time. Nobody wore a pink jacket then. <laughs> I wouldn't even know where to buy a pink jacket, much less in 1954. But people sensed something new and exciting and different about him. And then into all through 1955, he performed on the Hayride, developed a huge following, of course. So he came here every Saturday night. Yes, he signed. So most Hayride performers would sign a contract that required them to be here almost every Saturday for a whole year, barring, you know, sickness or the car broke down. And what did they pay him? Well, Elvis got paid $18 a performance and his bandmates got 12 can you imagine? $18. Did that even pay for fuel? I Barely. You know, there's a lot of great stories of the Hayride about musicians who you ultimately never heard of that were just getting by on beans and cornbread and would roll into town on an empty tank of gas and perform and make just enough money to fill the gas tank up and go to the next gig. And when Elvis first got here, he was kind of like that. But of course, in no time, he started to make a lot of money and become very famous. And then he bought out his contract. He did. So this, he signed a second contract that paid him a whopping $200 a performance, which was just kind of absurd for the Hayride because they're a radio show. So they're, they're not really making a lot of money. And then, he, and then they realized that he could make more money not being here. So him and Colonel Parker famously bought out his contract for $10,000, which is a crazy sum of money going into 1956. That's a lot of money. And Elvis just wrote a check and said, thanks for the memories. But his last performance was supposed to be here. So he did come back. Yes, one last performance. And it was not in this building. This is a common misconception. But they moved the Hayride. The Hayride was known to have traveling shows. They would not always be in this building. Occasionally, they'd go to other cities. So for this one performance, they moved out to the fairgrounds because there was a brand new building called the Hirsch, it was the youth building, but it's now the Hirsch Coliseum. And it held 9,000 people, so three times the amount that this building would hold. And of course, by 1956, Elvis's fandom was just exploding. So they, and there were renovations going on in this building. So the Hayride producers said, hey, let's move it out there. And so that all the kids that want to come can come, and boy, did they come. How many? So the building held 9,000 people. And the proceeds, this is a fun part of the story, the proceeds from that show went to the YMCA and they built a pool, a pool out of that money. So for years out at the YMCA in Shreveport, they had a pool called the Elvis Pool. <laughs> so he, he blew the roof off of that place. He blew the roof off the place. And the cool part about this time period right now, is there are people still alive who were there that night. They bought their ticket, they showed up, and they describe it as just chaos just flashbulbs and screaming and you could barely hear what he was playing and Elvis was performing essentially an arena rock concert but but predating most arena rock shows by decades they didn't have the amplification to keep up with what he was what he had become and so it really was a crossroads in American music they were trying to find their way out of the hillbilly you know folk era of the 30s and 40s and into rock and roll and they were navigating it just like everybody else was trying to figure it out. And Elvis was performing that night, and he finished his set, which was at the end of the first act. And the reason that matters... End of the first act of the radio show. the radio show, yeah. So he wasn't at the end. He was in the middle. And the vast majority of people that there that night were there to see him. And I have long said that the worst slot 
ever in American music history to perform would have been the very next person after Elvis at the Hayride that night because the fans literally ran out the doors. They were trying to catch him. They were trying to catch This was the Elvis phase of his life when they were ripping the clothes off and grabbing him. And just, I mean, he was in danger. So when he would finish the performance, he would just bolt out of where he was playing straight to the uh, you know, the convoy out back to, to take off, to get out of there. And those fans were pouring out the doors to go find him. And Horace Logan steps up to the microphone, begging and pleading for them not to leave because he needs a crowd for his show, which is still going on. And he says to them, just on a, just kind of unprompted, unrehearsed, he said, please don't go. Elvis has left the building. The very first time that yeah. was spoken. The very first time it was spoken. And it's, of course, since worked its way into uh, American lexicon. But the this is the irony. At that time, when they said Elvis has left the building, it meant the show's not over, please stay. But now in American culture, it kind of means the show's over. Elvis has left the building. Like, that's the end of it. So the obvious question sitting in this building now is, has Elvis really left this building? So as, as someone who's in this building a lot, it's amazing to see someone's legacy. You get people from all around the world who even were born after Elvis died who were such passionate fans. They came here to see this place where he performed 52 times on Louisiana Hayride. And so in a sense, no, Elvis has never left this building and he never will. And of course, anybody can come visit this building. Yes, there are tours available at ShreveportMunicipalAuditorium.com and we encourage people from all over the world. It doesn't matter where you come from, come to Shreveport, Louisiana. Come see this building and stand and appreciate the music history that happened here. And earlier today, I got a chance to do that. I went up on stage with you. We stood up there on the very piece of wood, <laughs> right? That wood flooring where how many different people perform? Well, that's the thing is beyond the hayride, the, the history in this building is the music history. Jimi Hendrix, Sam Cooke, Bob Dylan, Harry Connick, Aretha Franklin. I mean, you, you name it, they've performed here. And it's a place that musicians seek. They want to play here because they know the history. Speaking of the history, there's a very good story about Sam Cooke and the Shreveport Police. Yes. So this is honestly one of the most powerful stories to come from this building. Elvis has an amazing history. This, to me, is the more powerful story. It started when Sam Cooke was scheduled to perform here in the 1960s. And he booked a room at the Holiday Inn on North Market, which at the time was the nicest, newest hotel in town. And Sam Cooke was a very popular artist. This was not a no-name guy. He was a super popular guy. And he came here and got turned away from the Holiday Inn when they saw his skin color. He raised a fuss, understandably, and then went to a different hotel where he was welcomed. And the police showed up and arrested him. And he spent a night in jail before he performed here, pondering the injustice and started to come up with the lines for the song, A Change Is Gonna Come, which became the unofficial anthem of the civil rights movement just a few years later. So it's a dark part of our history, but we embrace it because it happened here. But something very beautiful came out of that. And if you listen to that song, A Change Is Gonna Come, it, it, you'll get goosebumps from head to toe if you listen to it in this building. Because as a musician, entertainer, you appreciate what it takes to go on stage after a night of hor horrible sleep. You've been arrested injustice, and, and knock it out of the park. Winston Hall, great history, great storytelling, and an amazing building that people need to come and see in a place they may not even know about, Shreveport, Louisiana. And we'll be back with more of Ion Travel as we continue our tour of Louisiana right after this. Hey.
Have a travel question or problem? Just email Peter at peter at petergreenberg.com and we'll solve it on the air. more information on what you've heard have a travel question or comment just log on to petergreenberg.com now here's peter and we're back peter greenberg here with you as ion travel continues our state tour of louisiana and you know the drill you can always reach me email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name phone number question or problem we will solve it right here on the air lots of things to talk about in this segment now you might you know want to investigate some airlines you've never heard about if you're going to europe Right, some airlines that may you won't even know their websites if you go online here, uh, but they exist. Airlines like Vueling, German Wings, Wizz Air, you may have heard of Ryanair, and many more. Now we're talking about not flights from the U.S., but flights in Europe once you get there. Sixty-five dollar airfares from Venice to Madrid, London to Rome for as low as thirty dollars. So how do you find these flights? Look for a website called Skyscanner or Google Flights, or, an air, or a website that most people have never heard of called Momondo, which scours a few hundred on-screen European websites and airlines and uh, that people don't even know about. Now, i got to give you a caution. Many of these airlines, you got to be a little creative here, they don't fly to or from major European international airports. For example, flights to Venice don't land at the Venice airport, but in an Air Force base in nearby Treviso, you get off the plane. I've done this on Ryanair. You get off the plane in Treviso, and you just hop a bus to Venice, and 45 minutes later, you are at Piazza Roma. Where's that? You hop on Vaporetto Number 1, and you are cruising through Venice, and you saved a whole lot of money. Now, uh, bottom line again is you're not going to find them on most of the major U.S. websites. They're only for inter-European travel. And again, be prepared to pack light or they'll charge you extra fees. We've been talking about that throughout the show. But it's still a good deal if you plan appropriately. Now, this is also the summer that over-tourism is topic A, once again. Uh, you know, Barcelona says they don't want to become a Venice. Venice says they don't want to become another Barcelona. Athens doesn't want to become an Athens. <laughs> uh, but now we're talking about, well, for lack of a better term, congestion pricing. Iceland, for example, has become so popular that a lot of their natural resources are being challenged, and the government is now imposing a new tourist tax this year. By the way, Iceland now joins Bali, which will start a tax of about 150,000 Indonesian rupiah, that's about $10, uh, next month. Barcelona, Paris, and Amsterdam already have tourism taxes, but they're preparing to increase them. In the case of Paris... The fees are going to be tripled. Now, we got to put this in perspective, and I'll give you an example in Venice. Venice is going to impose a fee starting in April that if you can't prove that you have a hotel reservation there, they're trying to get rid of the day trippers, they're going to charge you a little bit more than $5 as a fine. So here's the question. Is $5 really going to make a difference? I don't think so. Those aren't, those aren't severe financial consequences. It's not going to be, I don't think it'll be effective. Uh, and Venice is now saying they're going to start banning large groups at certain times of the year. So the real solution here is to do either severe financial consequences, which, by the way, doesn't seem particularly fair to a lot of people, especially if you're lower income traveling. 
you're turning it into an elite experience. Or perhaps a better way to go is to spread out the season and do it 12 months a year. You know when I go to Venice? I go to Venice in October and November. I'm not going to Venice for a suntan. I'm going to experience Venice. And maybe that's the right way to go. Now, we're seeing a lot of other stories happening now where cruise ships are now being either banned or made to park elsewhere, or there's a moratorium on the number of cruise ships can enter a harbor at any one time. That gets into scheduling, and the cruise ships should be able to be available to pivot in a way that can make that work. But get ready for the summer of additional congestion pricing fees. And then you take a look at a city like Athens, and you have to ask yourself, talk about ineffective. Last summer, 2023, 30,000 people a day were, were walking or attempting to walk up the Acropolis in 100-degree Fahrenheit weather. People were passing out. 30,000 a day. So what is the Athens government solution to this? They're going to limit it now to 20,000 a day. Are you serious? Is that really solving the problem? We all know it doesn't, uh, but that's what they're saying. We have to see. Again, you couldn't pay me to go to Athens in June, July, or August, right? Well, you could pay me, and I would tell you I went, but I wouldn't go. September's the magic month. May is the magic month until around the 15th of June. Plan appropriately. You won't be disappointed, all right? Uh, and now, if you plan appropriately, one quick note here, a lot of airlines now are giving you a free stopover for a few days without paying extra, right? But not every airline does that, so here's the workaround. Airlines will say, by the way, that you can't do it. However, if your overnight stay at your connection is less than 24 hours, there's no charge. So here's what you do. Here's the workaround. Arrive at 6 p.m. in the evening at destination A and have a great day the next day and leave the next day at 5 p.m. Now, the airlines won't tell you this, but I just did, and now you know how to do it, right? So if they tell you there's no, uh, no ability to do a stopover without paying a fee, get out the airline schedule, find out a flight that leaves that gives you the most amount of time within 24 hours to spend at that destination and still leave it the next day, and you're in. A very smart way to do it if you want to look at your destinations as appetizers prior to the main meal. Okay? Hope that's helpful. When we come back, we're going to the music box. You never heard about it, but you're about to right here in Louisiana as Ion Travel continues right after this. Please remain seated with your seatbelt fastened. Ion Travel will be right back. Now, back to Eye on Travel. Peter Greenberg here, back with you as Eye on Travel continues from all over the state of Louisiana. Of course, you can always reach me, Peter at PeterGreenberg.com with your name, phone number. Question or problem, we'll solve it right here on the air. If you go about 15 minutes out of downtown New Orleans, you're going to come up to a very crazy place. In fact, you need a little bit of direction in order to find it. But that's where you're going to find my next guest, Leah Hennessy. She is the creative director for New Orleans Airlift. Which doesn't really mean anything to most people. That's the nonprofit. But what you're going to find out there is something called the Music Box Village. And I've never seen anything like it. Imagine 
how do I say this? A collection of houses that look like they could collapse at any minute, <laughs> um, built with junk, built with discarded materials, but somehow wired together. And each individual house has a different musical function, which you get to play. It's the wildest thing. But Leah, tell me, I mean, how did this start? So New Orleans is such a musical city, as you know. Uh, second lines rolling down the block and marching bands from the high school practicing around the corner from your house. Can I just say one thing to give you an idea of how long I've been coming to New Orleans? Ready? Here it comes. St. Aug. Yeah. <laughs> okay. we, we know about that marching band. We do. They're incredible. So as you know, then, New Orleans is such a musical city. Uh, the founders of this project, Delaney Martin, Jay Pennington, Taylor Shepard, and Swoon, uh, got to thinking, what if your house was a musical instrument? So uh, there was a collapsing Creole cottage next to Jay's house. This is all a little bit post-Katrina, 2008, 2009. Um, and they started dreaming for this house. And in the process of refurbishing it with instruments, it collapsed. So they had all these salvage materials and decided to prototype their idea of musical houses, of musical architecture. And what ended up coming out of that are kind of these little shanty structures that you see here. And each of them is a different sonic sculpture that here at the Music Box Village, we have 16. So one is horns, one is chimes, one is drums, percussion. What else? We've got uh, musical ceiling fans. We've got musical monuments. Uh, we've got a musical sliding bass door uh, that plays like a fretless bass. Uh, and we've got a phone booth that's actually a microphone station. And that's just part of the 16. Yeah, I think we only hit eight. <laughs> and the cool thing is, if you're really nice to Lee, you get to play him. Oh yeah, but it, we really, it's for everybody, all ages, right down to your like five-year-old to, you know, established musicians like the Sun Ra Orchestra who we've had here and Nels Klein from Wilco and um, lots of different folks. So it can be played by anyone. And the cool thing is, is if you get enough people out here playing their different instruments at the exact same time, you actually might be lucky enough to come up with a song. Definitely. It's a symphony. Um, and we do have a local residency program where local artists come and really get to know how to play these houses over time. And then we put them into different ensembles and they make some incredible music. Uh, they really do. And uh, we do those concerts a few times every season. And I can attest to this because I just did it. Uh, I could play the, well, I could play percussion, but I'm playing percussion, not necessarily on drums. No, you were playing in the drum kitchen. So you were playing pots and pans and uh, broiler pans and cutting boards and can lids. Um, Let's not forget the sink drain. Right. <laughs> That's our snare drum. <laughs> <laughs> and then the horns, which are very cool because these are like boat horns. Yeah, exactly. Um, we're actually located on the Industrial Canal, which separates the Upper Ninth Ward from the Lower Ninth Ward. And so boats pass us all the time and we can honk right back at them. The horns you played are part of a house called the Delphine. And for those people who have a sense of history, and I do because I covered Katrina, we all know how hard hit the Ninth Ward was. Yeah, definitely. Um, we've been in our space since 2016, so we're kind of part of the latest wave of things happening here in the Bywater. Um, but it's very much a community space and uh, came out of the, the ideas, you know, post-Katrina, all of the resilience post-Katrina, um, and we're happy to be here. And you're a nonprofit. We are, yes. What's the website? Uh, NewOrleansAirlift.org or, and or, MusicBoxVillage.com. And if you're a local here, admission is free. If you're like me and some outsider kind of guy, how much is it? 12 and then five for kids.
and well worth the experience because it truly is hands-on application. Definitely. Um, and those are those prices are for our open hours when people can come and really tour the space. But we do concerts um, and they really are immersive and one of a kind. Um, we've had Grammy winning musicians, Nicholas Payton, Snarky Puppy here. So check out our website um, and you can see whether you can come to a concert or just these open hours days. And lucky for me, you let me play the instruments, but you didn't record it because <laughs> you wouldn't want to know. But, I, but, but it was fun. It absolutely was fun. Leah Hennessy, the creative director for Music Box Village. Yes. And of course, the nonprofit is Airlift right here in New Orleans. Thank you so much for joining us. And well, you will send me a recording of my, of my, of my drum playing, won't you? Yeah, well, I think you're going to be able to see it, too. <laughs> okay, that will be, we call that a CEM. You know what CEM is? No. A career-ending move. <laughs> <laughs> Leah, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much. And we'll be back with more from New Orleans and the rest of Louisiana right after this. Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Ion Travel will be right back. You've been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production. Peter Greenberg, we're back as Ion Travel continues our tour through Louisiana. Of course, you can always reach me. You know the drill. Email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question, or problem, and we will answer it right here on the air. In this segment, we've moved on to southern Louisiana, <laughs> a place called Vermilionville. And my guest, two-time Grammy Award winner, Terrence Simeon, how are you, sir? I'm good, Peter. How you doing? Now, today? I just I, I, when you say Grammy Award winner, I got to put this in perspective. Grammy Award winner because you got a Zydeco band. That's right, man. We we Zydeco, Zydeco, Zydeco Creole, Zydeco music. And that leads me to why Vermilionville and explain your Creole heritage because it goes back a long time. Okay, well, my family, my last name is Simeon, and we some of the oldest Creoles. One of the oldest Creole families to settle in this area in South Louisiana. Uh, my family have records that go back in the St. Landry Parish Courthouse back to the uh, mid-1700s, 1756. And, um, you know, as a Creole, my ancestors are from many different parts of the world. I'm part French, African, Spanish, Native American, German, Irish, and Norwegian. Yeah, you can't forget the Norwegian. No, man, you, you know, and, but it's like all these cultures came together here in South Louisiana and created a whole new culture with music, food, and a different way of living. But here in Vermilionville, you, you've simply attempted to recreate, if you will, that culture. The houses here were moved here. They are the original houses in many cases. That's right. I mean... And it's, it's amazing because you get a chance to see how everyone lived. That's right. You get a chance to see how everyone lived back in the day, like they'd say, you know, in the 1800s and 1700s. You know, things was quite different than they are now. You know, people didn't have electricity. People were plowing with mules and, and horses and no, no tractors or anything like that, you know. So all this, this, this community was built you know, from that time. 
And of course, the Creole had, they were sort of confused, if you will, <laughs> because the French gave them privileges that the whites would never have given them. That's right. That's right. The French, on the French laws, there was some French laws written in, the, in 1724 called the Code Noir, which, you know, there was some, there was some very, you know, messed up stuff in there. But uh, the one thing, it allowed people of color to be able to own property and be protected by the, in, a, in a court of law. That and in some cases, even to own their own slaves. Unfortunately, that did happen. That did happen, you know. And, um, and, and at, but also, once the Civil War was over with, the Creoles became the leaders in the black community. And there's also a lot of stories about how, you know, the Creoles helped people who were slaves work, get, get, you know, become free, you know, um, in many different ways. In many different ways, um, people um, could work at, if back, in, back, in those, back in the 1700s. Right. Um, when slavery was, was happening. Let me ask you this, because the music, of course, evolves from that. Yeah. Right? I see you're wearing an accordion. Hell yeah, yeah. Now that's not Louisiana accordion. That's Germany, right? That's right. This this instrument came from Germany. The, the Germans were the ones who brought this instrument to Louisiana. Our music started very primitive, though. You know, uh, the earliest form of Creole music was a style called the jure, which was done by just clapping your hands, stomping your feet, and using your voice. Um, that's some recordings from... And, and, and the Zydeco? Well, before, before the instruments were added, there was recordings uh, made by Alan and John Lomax for the Library of Congress in 1925 that captured some of these jure uh, songs where it's just, like I said, the instruments were just using the voice, clapping your hands and stomping your feet. Then came the washboard. And then came the washboard, the accordions, and whatever instrument that made its way into the music. Now, I see you brought some members of your band, so introduce them very That's quickly. That's right. All right. Well, we have right here next to me Grammy Award winner Stan Chambers on the guitar, acoustic guitar. And on the tambourine, we have two-time Grammy Award winner, Mr. Danny Williams. And you got a guy on Zydeco. Who's that? Oh, man, some guy named Greenberg. <laughs> How'd he get in? <laughs> All right, well, I'm wearing the thing, so let's play a little song to end the show. You ready? All right. You start it off. Time from somewhere around the world. Bye bye.
You've been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production.